Phillips, and you're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. We respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians in our work. Originating in Germany in 1992, the passive house methodology provides for energy efficient homes that support healthy indoor air quality and year round thermal and acoustic comfort. Certified passive houses are underpinned by the five passive house foundational principles of appropriate insulation, no uncontrolled air leakage, mechanical heat recovery ventilation, windows that insulate and seal, and no thermal bridging. Today I sat down with Claire Parry, Better Buildings Leader Hip Me Hype and founding chair at Passive House Australia, Marcus Chang, senior consultant in the Better Buildings team at Hip Me Hype, and Andy Marlowe, architect and Envirotecture, to discuss how to design a passive house. So what are the underlying benefits of building passive house for the occupants? My One of my favourite benefits, and I think one of the ones that most people target when they set out to build passive house, is comfort and indoor environment quality. But alongside that, you get health, healthy spaces, great well-being, and really, really fantastic energy efficiency as well. The bushfires of last year or 2019-2020 ended up bringing up some really interesting data and on indoor air quality during those fire events and it showed that leaky houses were really 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 bad and it showed that airtight houses were quite a bit better and I think unfortunately we're going to see more of those type of events hopefully not but I think it's fairly likely that we will and since that a few people within the passive house world have done a bit of work on improving the filtration on what is already a fairly well uh, filtered um, air handling system and I think what we'll see in the next round of bushfire events is that your passive house is basically as good as it would be on a normal day inside. And I think when we see that kind of evidence really proven, because last time it was just better than being in a normal house, this is going to be significantly awesome. And also heat waves. We haven't had some any horrendous heat waves, at least in Sydney, for a couple of years. And as soon as we get a couple of them, same thing. I think that the data on how well your passive house performs is really going to start to make a difference. Yeah, and that that really highlights the resilience of passive house buildings. There was some stunning air quality data that came out of a childcare centre in Canberra that I recall. And yeah, they saw that they were one of the only centres that were able to remain open in Canberra during that bushfire season. The lady who owned it moved her family in and lived in the centre because it was better than living in their house. The other one is recently in Texas when they had that ridiculous cold snap and there was no power for days on end. And there was a couple of people in the States posting data from their certified passive houses, just showing that basically they were still alive and actually fairly warm, considering it was minus whatever and there was no electricity. So that kind of stuff, those stories are incredibly powerful. And actually, they're more powerful when they're from homeowners than when they're from, you know, the professionals who are involved, because everyone looks at us and just goes, well, you would say that. But when it's a regular family, then it's much more potent. What do you see as the considerations for designing from Passive House? Obviously, you're involved in a number of, of projects from an architectural perspective. And how do they differ from, from an ordinary house? These considerations, do they change in, in different climates, for example, between building in Brisbane or in Melbourne? The, the houses don't have to be any different as such from an aesthetic point of view. The, the main strength from a design side is that you can make anything work as a Passive House. It's just a case of how hard it is to make that work. 
So simplistically put, the easiest thing to do is to build a box because boxes are easiest and there's less surface area and they work really well. But you don't have to. And there's some wonderful examples of some buildings around the world that are actually very complicated and still meet the passive house standard. So it's the flexibility that's probably the biggest factor. And certain things, especially in urban environments, whereby you don't necessarily need great solar access, especially when you get Sydney or North. Actually, you don't really need solar access at all. So you can make some what you might fairly poor quality sites work really well because you're not reliant on the sort of traditional passive solar approach to buildings. And what about Marcus? You have a really good insight into this topic. You're doing your PhD currently on, on CLT and tropical climates. Do you have an insight as to how that design consideration could shift depending on, on climactic conditions? Yeah, definitely. I think it is quite interesting that we really can apply these underlying um, building physics to anywhere in the world. It's um, exactly the same. Although somewhere like Melbourne, which is um, heating dominated, we're really looking at designing that in some ways and adapting that differently if we're, say, looking at Brisbane. So then we're designing that for a cooling dominated climate. And in that case, we might optimise for shading such as deep eaves, and we can take and learn some of the vernacular design that is still well-placed within the passive house standard. And we can appropriate in some way some of that building culture to reflect the needs of the locality. And what about from your perspective, Claire? You must be involved in a number of projects where you're working intimately with architects. Is there kind of a consideration or an early discussion you have you know, together with, with yourself and the architectural team as to how, how the design can best respond to the methodology? We often let the architects have a, have a bit of a stab at, you know, whatever they want to deliver on a particular site and then we come along and we help mould that to meet the Passive House standard. So one of, I think one of the major strengths of the Passive House standard is that it doesn't demand any particular architectural approach or style and that flexibility that Andy was talking about is very apparent. So if you look at any Passive House project around the world, definitely the early ones had a particular typology or a particular aesthetic. But more recently, there's been some incredibly creative responses to site, to client demands, to user demands, to, you know, material availability. And as Marcus was talking about, local vernacular. Yeah, I, I really don't like to bring my engineering response to architectural design. It's not my area. So we, we tend to like to follow what the architect is asking for. And what about when we're looking at broader developments, not just single residential, for example, why would or should a developer be looking at Passive House maybe to integrate an off-the-plan project or on a, much, on a much broader scale potentially? What are the benefits for them? Well, I think that, you know, as people become more aware of how efficient, how comfortable, you know, how much their buildings affect them and their well-being and their health, from a developer perspective, you can take a really strong forward-looking approach into, you know, delivering products. If we look at buildings as product and developers tend to, you can deliver something that you know, surprises and delights people in terms of the kind of environments that they get to inhabit and live in. When they're delivering to, say, corporate clients, they get a product that is very efficient, very very cost-effective to run, helps to enhance occupant productivity, absenteeism is reduced. There's a whole host of benefits that come alongside that. And I think we just need to start speaking a different language to those different kinds of clients. But from a developer perspective, all types of buildings should be delivered to Passive House just to offer extra value. And we're now starting to look at that differently as we know what our buildings are doing for us and to us. 
One of the things that I think has been interesting, in particular in New South Wales, where I'm based, in the last couple of years, has been all the issues that have arisen in apartment buildings, in particular. And fundamentally, it's an issue of quality. And people aren't getting what they thought they were getting. They're not getting what they pay for. Passive House is fundamentally a quality assurance scheme. It happens to be assuring quality buildings that are healthy, comfortable, efficient, etc., etc. And therefore, I think from a developer's perspective, it's a real something you can hang your hat on and say, this is our guarantee of quality. And the tacit thing they're saying there is because at the moment, the governance systems that we have don't actually work very well. And therefore, you don't have a guarantee of quality. This is the best that we can offer you. So I think that is starting to shift a lot of people. And in particular, as they move into build to rent for apartments, that's going to be a huge part of the driver, partly to get people in through the door, but also because it's going to be the thing that they, the building owner, the developer is going to own for decades to come. So they actually want to know they're getting quality because all of a sudden they've shifted from buying it, building it to sell it, to building it to own it for a really long time. All of a sudden their focus is going to change quite dramatically. Absolutely. And I suppose it, it leads really well into you know, our next point about Obviously, there's a huge amount of different certification systems or, or different models that are presented both to consumers and to the industry. It is a bit of a crowded universe in terms of rating tools for buildings and trying to, you know, assert level, different levels of sustainability and what that would have a material benefit or, or tangible effect for people that experience. How do you see Passive House fitting into that? Andy, I know that you designed quite a few of buildings to Passive House standard. What was the alignment for you in, in that circumstance? Uh, it's interesting for us because the nature of our clients means that on the whole, they're not too phased by all the different rating tools that exist. We see Passive House is fitting really well with all of them, though, because it's completely agnostic on a whole bunch of things. And that's often a criticism of, like, it doesn't care about water. It doesn't mean you don't care about water in your projects. It just means that the Passive House standard doesn't say anything about it. So we find it dovetails really well with all of them, in particular, something like the Living Building Challenge. Um, which is way deeper and harder than anything else that exists still. But you can still do passive house with it, and there's a crosswalk for that. So I think it's a it's a really important part of a bigger picture, um, but it's certainly not everything. I mean, it doesn't address embodied energy at all, which is arguably the biggest challenge we've got right now. I mean, we know how to design passive house buildings. There's no real technical challenges as such, like all been solved or are quite easily solvable. So it's really a case of just getting on with it. Resolving embodied energy issues is in my view at least at the moment, probably the hardest thing that the industry is trying to grapple with. So I don't know where Marcus and Claire are at with embodied energy stuff, but it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's tricky to say the least. Yeah, we've done a fair bit of work in that space. But, you know, on the rating tool side, I know, Andy, you ran a fair bit of, you know, an immense piece of work around getting Passive House recognised in the BASICS tool in New South Wales. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't compete at all. It, it, and in many ways, it does complement. And even, you know, Green Star, Living Building Challenge, as we've mentioned, a number of other global rating tools. But if, even if you examine the core pieces or the elemental bits that are, bit, are delivered in Section J in our National Construction Code, it's starting to lay out passive house principles in a sort of in a piecemeal way and none of it comes together particularly well and it's but I think it's moving in the right direction it's talking the right language so 
Passive house is really just targeting this this outcome around yeah energy efficiency and comfort and good air quality as we've talked about. So it it, it complements generally or at least aligns quite nicely with a lot of rating tools. Yeah, embodied energy. I guess if we touch on that a little bit. So we've done a fair bit of work around doing life cycle assessments for various buildings, mostly non-residential to be honest. So or multi-residential at least. So larger than your single family dwellings. Once you know, if you don't focus on energy efficiency over the life cycle of a building, you tend to see, and there's a fair bit of research behind this in a number of different jurisdictions, that the overall energy impact of a building roughly sits at around 80% of that carbon across the building's life cycle sits in the operational phase. But obviously, as we start to make our buildings more efficient, and we're not having a huge amount of success with that in Australia, but as we do move in that direction, embodied carbon will become much more significant as a proportion. So we do need to address both at the same time. But sometimes it is, you may find that you get a slight increase in your embodied carbon to deliver an efficient building. But overall, across the life cycle, I think that that's actually a very, very good outcome. Still a huge reduction. Absolutely. Marcus, I mean, you've engaged with a number of different tools across across your professional journey and have now one of the few Passive House certifiers in Australia what differentiates or makes Passive House standards stand out? Well, just to add quickly on that embodied energy part, because I think that's really interesting as well. I think because when, when we're developing Passive Houses for owners, they typically tend to be environmentally conscious anyway. So the idea is hopefully that we can you know, show them low carbon construction materials and such as straw bale, um, straw panel wood and, and things like that. And they're and allow that to be combined with yeah, the um, benefits of energy efficiency and low embodied carbon. So hopefully we can kind of leverage the, both of those. Where, where does Passive House fit in within the rating tools? I think as, as both Andy and Claire kind of outlined that it's it, that it can sit very nicely with them and, and work along. Though for me, it stands out as providing very reliable, high energy savings and excellent occupant comfort with like highlighting that very small gap between predicted and measured performance. So for me, that's where it really stands apart from the other, the other standards that are out there at the moment. So I suppose to broaden the conversation, we've mentioned that Passive House originated in Germany. Obviously, it's gaining you know, significant traction in Australia. What's the greater global context of, of Passive House with regards to responding to the risks presented by climate change and, and global inequality more broadly? So the Passive House Institute broadly undertake advocacy and uh, a really large piece of outreach work in a lot of developing countries. So they've done, recently they published a whole bunch of work around their response or their alignment with the SDGs, the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. But I know of quite a few projects they've done in developing countries, such as, you know, Mexico, India, around improving their building stock, making sure that, you know, disadvantaged communities get access to, you know, the most basic of, of housing, you know, performance. Obviously, Passive House, you know, it, it's not even basic performance in Australia, but yet, you know, they're doing this outreach work to make sure that as these countries become developed, that they leap past, the, you know, this journey that we've been on in Australia and other developing countries to go through, you know, quite a convoluted journey to get to efficiency and healthy buildings. So I think that work is really important to close that gap. I think there's still a lot of potential around the world and, and obviously it needs to be in the right context. It needs to be done in the right way, but we can, yeah, we can definitely help to improve 
the response of different building sec- different sectors in different countries to giving their citizens access to good housing. And you spoke to, about built to rent and I suppose this idea that uh, access to these the standard of, of housing that we're speaking to should and, and could have a much broader application than and just maybe the single residential context which which is often just the realm of the wealthy. Look, I think one of the most inspiring and wonderful things that we see from overseas is the amount of passive house projects that are happening for social housing projects, whether they're called social housing, community housing, whatever the country decides to term those things, but basically housing for people who can't really afford it. And in North America in particular, they're doing the most amazing things, partly because they've got a bizarre taxes, but it's incentivizing them to build amazing passive house projects for cost comparison to code and arguably it's the people who need it most in life who are getting the houses that they really need. Like you say, a lot of passive houses, at least at the start of the, in each country, it's always been the same. They've tended to be the domain of those who could afford it. What we haven't really seen here yet is that expanding out into, you know, into the social housing and even into larger apartment blocks. We're starting to see it now. But New York's doing some amazing things at phenomenal, phenomenal scale, like hundreds of apartments at a time all the passive house and British Columbia as well, especially with their um, energy step code, which basically is set out a series of steps from here to 2032, by which point in 2032, everything will basically be to the passive house standard, whether you like it or not. And that's the thing that drives real change. There's no, once you know where you're heading, everybody's got to get on board. And at the moment, because to put it bluntly, we've got no idea where we're going in Australia. Everyone's just kicking around, kind of waiting to be told what's going to happen next. If we had a decent target with a trajectory, then I think we'd find everyone to get their act together and all of a sudden double and triple glazed windows would be cheaper than single glazed because no one wants single glazing anymore and all those things. As you say, it really should be you know, a minimum standard with, with the benefits that it, it brings not only to occupants but no doubt the broader implications to public health, to, to climate change. Yeah, as we're able to slowly increase the case studies that we have in Australia and we're offering that proof of passive houses validity and application outside of Europe and within Australia, we'll, we'll continue to see it like rapidly increasing. And it's definitely moving that way. As, as we stated, the, the, um, our policy will slowly incentivize passive house and it, it is moving that way just yeah it is a slow process i think it's all positive i was reading earlier today that as of two, 2019 there was a handful of of passive house certified buildings in australia but that was number of, of ones in development at that stage and and it has grown exponentially and will continue to grow how do you see passive house movement developing in australia specifically over the next five to ten years as this momentum starts to build So I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to start to see more social housing projects. I think it's going to start to make its way into the language of local government. As we know, you know, most activity or most action takes place at that local government level. And, you know, fingers crossed from there, it'll become, you'll have much more market broader awareness. And then, you know, people will start to demand it a bit more in, you know, perhaps private or, you know, market development residential. I think we've seen exponential growth in just in uh, our own business with regards to how much, how many of our clients come in either asking first for passive house or saying, yeah, we know what passive house is. Show us, tell us more, you know, help us understand the benefit, what it means to us and how we can apply it. But I, I think it'll generally just make its way into the the language that people start to talk when they come in with a new project, the certifications will get out there. You know, it'll start to be spoken in the same way that Nat has Green Star. It'll just become part of the vocab for most project teams. 
And Andy, are you seeing quite, quite a big shift in your client base already? And do you see that developing rapidly over the next five to 10 years? Our client base is fairly niche and unique to start with, which is quite a blessing for us. So in the same way, we've seen a lot more people walking through the door asking specifically for passive haste from day one, whereas historically they'd come in and ask for a sustainable home and then you'd have a very long conversation about what on earth that means for them. Because you know. So look, our business has grown every year quite a bit for the last four or five since we've been involved in this. It's going gangbusters. We kind of, you know, trying very hard to keep up at the moment, which is a great thing. We see it growing more and more. As more of these buildings get built, more people experience them and... We haven't really spoken about it, but the the thing that gets most people is when they've been inside one of these buildings. And as soon as you've experienced one, especially if you've slept in one or stayed in one for more than a day or two, then all of a sudden it's like, well, why would I want anything else? So as more projects get up and more of that occurs, then it's just going to become what people ask for. So... I can't see it going backwards. I can. It's really just a case of how fast everybody can keep. There's a whole bunch of issues around how quickly local manufacturing will start to deliver the products that we need so we're less reliant on imported things. They're all debates. At the end of the day, if they don't keep up, which is what's happening at the moment, you import it from overseas. And for better or worse, that's not financially too challenging and therefore we're getting to deliver the buildings we need. Hopefully local industry will catch up because then we come back to the embodied carbon thing again. Yeah, as you say, Andy, once you've experienced it, you can't really you can't really unlearn about passive house once you've been inside one. And I've actually thought about starting up a network of um, people who own passive house because we all now have to holiday in each other's homes because we don't want to ever stay anywhere else. I really like it. I had to write to someone today who asked whether if they went 70% of the one, would that be a bad thing? And I just wrote back, it's like, which 30% would you like us to do badly? And Marcus, no doubt, you're much more involved in, in the research side of it as well as the, the practice community. How do you see it shifting in the next five to ten? I do think we start to see more of a yeah acceleration in different climate zones around Australia and seeing that acceptance for passive house that it can be used there. We'll start to have access to our own manufacturers, which which will vastly improve the passive houses we can achieve here. Um, so yeah, definitely exponential growth into the future on passive house standard. I think it's definitely something, you know, to, to look forward to in terms of, as you say, this, you know, the build quality across Australia, as we know, is so poor. So to start to provide those experiences for people to try and understand it in a tangible sense um, and experience what it's like to, to even stay a night in a passive house will have an enormous effect and hopefully that will expand out to be much more accessible across the board. Well, thank you so much for your time and look forward to seeing more from Passive House. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.